Are you are you calling me a misfit, Lauren? Yes. Welcome to Infill, where we chat housing politics and policy. So I'm Laura Foote, Yimby Action. And I'm Scott Feeney. And today we have a very special guest, David Cleon, who I went to high school with. He is a writer and a progressive blogger and provocateur on the internet, um, and has sometimes maybe tweeted things that, uh, I don't know. David, why don't you take it from there? Well, I, I want to throw an editor, first of all. I'm an editor for the website Jewish Currents, which is a leading, or wants to be and will be a leading <laughs> left Jewish destination. So I'll just get that in there. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, I, on my Twitter feed, I've, I've occasionally um, pissed off Yimby Twitter. Um, while I don't normally like to troll with my, with my tweets, um, what I find interesting about Yimby Twitter is it's maybe the one constituency that I that I annoyed that I also like and often agree with and have many friends in and um, am at least half persuaded by uh, normally I only like to troll my enemies you know neoconservative <laughs> or the alt-right or people like that but but I do have this weird more complicated relationship with the MB Twitter and um, I sometimes feel like I'm like I'm halfway there and I'm inviting them to persuade me to go all in. So, um, so maybe that's what this uh, podcast can be about. Yeah. I think unfortunately when you invite Yimby's halfway in, they like very much take the bait and will talk to you on Twitter for the literal rest of your life. Um, yeah. is... Yes, that is true. <laughs> it is one of the most aggressive Twitter communities I know of and certainly the most aggressive that's not like, bigoted or anything. <laughs> they just have very strong policy views that they are not going to back down on. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like this kind of like very strong policy views and trying to make sure, yeah, I do see the Yimbies trying to be policy forceful and trying not to be interpersonal forceful. Um, although I don't know that that's always captured in every tweet. No, I mean, I think it, it is mostly policy. It's It's not you know, any more ad hominem than any other internet fight. But I think um, I, I have various critiques of Yimbyism. Uh, some, some of them are more as a movement than as what the, the core policies Yimbys believe in are. But one, I think, is this kind of attitude of like, um, we have figured this out. We know what the right answers are for our cities. Um, and people who haven't been brought around yet are, are fools or acting in bad faith. And the fact that that might include, you know, large portions of vulnerable or ordinary people in any given city uh, doesn't seem like it concerns some Yimbies. I don't want to speak of all of them as 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 much as it might. Um, so in some ways, I I hope that in goading them, I'm not just being a jerk, but uh, maybe trying to keep the Yimby movement on its toes a little about its political communication strategy um, and the, the sort of the reputation that it creates on, on the broader left. And I should say, I, I identify broadly with the, the left. I, I think I'm somewhere on the border between 
DSA leftism and the most progressive wing of the Democratic Party, pretty, pretty much across the board. That's where I'd like to think I am on housing, but housing I do recognize from having studied and read about it a lot is, is, a, is a uniquely complicated issue. So policy-wise, what do you think your biggest critique of Yimby is? Well, it's hard to say because I, I know the movement is not monolithic. I mean, one thing I, I think I see is that it's a movement that has a mix of people who I think are very progressive and also people who I think of more as libertarians, um, which obviously, if you're on the left, um, rankles a bit. So I guess in some ways when I'm criticizing Yimbis, I'm probably criticizing a libertarian caricature version of what they are. I often find that I get pushed back on by more progressive Yimbis who, who say this is not a fair summation of their views. Um, I think the general left critique of Yimbiism would be that it's deregulatory, for one thing. It's, it's a movement that seems to be important faith in the free market. Um, and, you know, if you were to analogize it to uh, healthcare education, the two things along with housing that most people on the left think should be basic human rights, it, it often feels like it's moving in, in the same direction that um, school choice or, um, uh, you know, privatized health, health insurance accounts, you know, something like that. Like, like if we just leave it up to the market, it will produce efficient, humane, just outcomes. And I think people on the left are, are very skeptical of this. So like, is removing restrictions on zoning deregulation? Is this like endless rabbit hole you can get into? Because when you start out with regulations being regressive, I think it's very hard for people on the left to like see changing the regulations to make them less regressive as a progressive thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So I think that's a really fair point. And I, I should say also that most of what Yimbys broadly think about cities and the history of American urban development is stuff that I both agree with and am steeped in. But, but so when it comes to, uh, the urban form, like I agree with Yimbys and their basic critique of American urban environments that a city like Houston or, or Phoenix is, you know, is, is created through massive amounts of sprawl. It's not walkable. It's not dense. It's not transit oriented. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure we all saw today these, um, this excellent article in the New York Times with these really great maps of American cities and, and, uh, how much of them are, are single-family housing, and you can see in a, you know, in, in 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 most American cities, it's a large majority of the land that's given over to to single-family housing. And you so, sound like a Yimby. I sound like a Yimby. So when you're talking about regressive zoning, I know exactly what you mean. And I, to be honest, in most of these environments, I think I am a Yimby. Like I think. <laughs> uh, I think if we were to talk about somewhere like Houston, and you were to say, look, like you should be able to rent a single family home to any number of families. You should be able to build multifamily housing in what are traditionally single family neighborhoods without restriction, you know, market rate or affordable. I don't, I don't really dispute that because I, I think the history of, of the American built environment in the second half of the 20th century and through to the present is a catastrophe and one rooted in racist and classist policies. So I, I doubt we'd even find any disagreement there. 
Well, and uh, I don't think we'd find disagreement. I mean, you you talk about sort of deregulation and and sort of this kind of leftist thing that that there is a libertarian sort of wing of Yimby, but we make our libertarians very unhappy because we we're constantly supporting increased funding for subsidized affordable and all kinds of programs to get more public, social, and subsidized affordable housing built. And so, you know, it's always interesting when someone sort of critiques us on that framework because I sort of feel like, well, we want to help and we want to make sure that it's legal to build specifically that kind of housing in the most exclusionary communities. Yeah, and of course I agree with you on that too. Um, but here's where I think I think we can locate maybe things that there's more tension on. Um, so most of the context in which I personally think about this is in the handful of cities in the country where the problem is not by certainly by national standards lack of density. These are very dense places by national standards. The problem is uh, an affordability crisis created by extreme demand. Uh, I live in Brooklyn and you, I believe, live in San Francisco. And I um, lived in Brooklyn uh, a while ago. Actually, yeah, so, so we're familiar with these and we could probably name, you know, five or six other places in the country that with, with plenty of variations are broadly in this situation, right? Uh, where, where they just have, you know, incredibly uh, superheated urban housing markets. And we could talk about places outside the U.S. like London, too. Um, and, and you don't think that's a shortage? I, yes and no. Um, here, I think what you see are, I, I think first you see externalities to uh, development-driven building that are not always fully acknowledged in EMB rhetoric or are sort of like, you know, there, there's a kind of no true Scotsman fallacy where where they get attributed to the problems you guys are fighting and 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 not anything you're advocating. And second, um, I think uh, we have to think about how policies are actually implemented and how you know sometimes half a loaf can be can be more damaging than no loaf at all. I'm not saying I necessarily believe that, but let, let, me, let me try to get a little more specific. So um, when it comes to the problem of urban gentrification in a neighborhood like uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant here in Brooklyn, um, which is a historically black neighborhood of dense row houses and, you know, maybe six-story apartment buildings and uh, you know, I'm, I'm also talking about neighborhoods like Crown Heights or Prospect Lefferts Gardens, where I live. Um, and, uh, you know, these are, these are large neighborhoods in the middle of Brooklyn that are all experiencing extremely rapid gentrification right now as younger, mostly white, college-educated people move into them. So it's a, it's a pretty familiar story in Washington, D.C. and Philly and a lot of other cities we're familiar with. And... Um, you know, in these neighborhoods, what I see happening is because these are historically low-income neighborhoods, because they were historically segregated black neighborhoods, it's easier to build new housing in those neighborhoods than it is in the wealthiest, most established neighborhoods in Brooklyn, like Brooklyn Heights or Park Slope, which are mostly white, um, and which are also very dense in the grand scheme of things, too. I mean, Brooklyn is the second densest county in the United States with Manhattan being by far the first. So I want to pause you here. 
because I think it's important that I agree with everything you've said so far. Okay, noted. Um, so, <laughs> so I think here's where I see the Yimbies getting into a little bit of trouble. If your proposal is what was just done in Minneapolis, and which I think I broadly support, um, which is to just up down the entire city in one in one fell swoop. swoop. Uh, if if that is your proposal, then I see the logic to it. What we've actually seen in New York is if you and and in a lot of other cities that are experiencing intense gentrification, is that if that's the proposal. Um, half a loaf means you'll get that in the poorer neighborhoods. You won't get that in the richest neighborhoods because they're best equipped to fight back. And the, I'm not totally clear on what the policy levers for fighting, you know, best connected, most influential people in New York or whatever city are. Well, uh, David. I, I, I do want to hear in a sec. But it's it Yimby. It, it's Yimby, I have no doubt. But I think the problem, and the, the place where Yimbyism gets an image problem on the left, is so if you say let's upzone everything, development is good, let's build more everywhere, but then in practice, after the process of political compromise, that ends up happening in historically poor uh, neighborhoods of color, then uh, the face of Yimbyism halfway succeeding is going to be dense new development that's mostly market friendly, um, aimed at the gentrifier set uh, in those neighborhoods. And, you know, that's, meanwhile, you're gonna have local tenant right groups in those neighborhoods protesting that development because, and, and you could call them NIMBYs, but they have a pretty legitimate concern, uh, which I'll spell out in more detail in a sec, although I should give you a chance to respond to this. But they have, they have legitimate concerns, and I feel like there's a, there's a political inadequacy to saying to rent burden people or their advocates in those neighborhoods, um, well, don't blame the developers, don't blame the gentrifiers, blame the people over in Brooklyn Heights who aren't letting you know their fair share of housing be built. Like, it's really their fault. Like, I don't think that's being adequately communicated to the people who are being most adversely affected by this. And I'll stop there for now. So. I deeply, I mean, I've, this is the argument that, that I hear all the time. So I, I you know, I'm going to try to sort of like be efficient. Like the only people, I think that, that there's a conflation of kind of what the previous generation of urbanists picked as their easy battles and what Yimby has chosen to do. The previous group of people did a lot of, we'll do spot up zoning, we'll focus it in low income communities, we'll up zone the vulnerable communities to deal with the overall demand, and we'll let all of the single family home only zoning neighborhoods off the hook. And that is like what the history of cities has been for the past 30 years as we've seen down zoning of exclusionary communities and up zoning of historically redlined and low income communities. And like, I totally agree, like the lived experience of most people, especially over the past 20 years who live in at-risk gentrifying communities is that the only condos that are being built are being built in their communities. It's, you know, changing the makeup of their community even faster than just the displacement is. And, and it, it's horrible. And Yimby came into that kind of existing framework and said, okay, we've got to bring the fight to the suburbs and we have to figure out how to bring 
this argument and say we have to upzone single family home only zoning. And like frankly, like all of the first like when we first started, everybody in urbanism told me that we should not be doing that. They were like, don't go pick a fight with the single family homeowners. Don't go argue with the suburbs. You know, let's get these like spot up zoning massive projects through. And that will like help us with this overall shortage supply. And we as a movement were like, well, no, that's unethical. We have to bring the fight to the single family home only communities. We have to do Minneapolis style up zoning of the single family neighborhoods. We have to do, I think SB 50 is like a large example of kind of where our values are. It has large cutouts for at risk gentrifying communities and puts more pressure on places that have had a lot of jobs growth and a lot of economic growth um, and have, have kept the walls up on housing. Um, and, and I do think that we have like not only heard that, but incorporated into like our core values and policies. Well, I, I, I mean, I hope so. I think that that is the strategy that has to be pursued. I mean, you want that if, if, if you want to elect EMB Alliance, and I, I think you do, if you want DSA types to be championing YIMBYism, then I think it has to be clear that this is a movement taking on the powerful and not, um, belittling the concerns of um of the vulnerable and uh to the extent that it is that's that's great that's commendable i mean i think um that we should talk a little bit about what the concerns of of the vulnerable are uh and how it plays out in a place like bed um because it's not as it's sometimes taken to be just a matter of aesthetics as you know like the first wave already gentrifiers resenting the fancier gentrifiers who come in and ruin their <laughs> neighborhood. I mean, I'm not saying that's not a thing, but first of all, you know, this isn't really about either set of gentrifiers. And, and second of all, um, th this is, this is a real material problem. Uh, so in a neighborhood like we can just buttonhole all of the people who are like the aesthetics. I, we just, they do exist, but we are going to separate them and well, not, I think well, I, I will eventually get to aesthetics. I just don't want that to be my priority. But I do okay. think it's worth acknowledging it as well. Um, and it's not, well, anyway, we'll get to that later. But let's talk about the real material issue that you get when you have, you know, this, this intensive introduction of new market rate housing in a, in a previously redlined neighborhood. Um, you know, essentially, the reason this is so destructive is that you're getting a giant correction to a racist policy that held sway for, for most of the past. And the correction ends up replicating exactly the same stru racist structures. And, you know, um, so in the past, these, these neighborhoods were like, you know, the only neighborhoods that rented to black people. And if you, you know, owned in them, you, you, you couldn't, uh, you know, get a loan and you were excluded from, from certain suburbs. So those were effectively all white suburbs. And this is all, you know, well-known but not well-enough known history. Um, today, and, then, and currently, I mean, and then continued to be disinvested in even after the explicitly racist policies were eliminated. Yes, but today there's a twist on all of this. Well, there's, there's a, a social trend twist and there's a policy twist. And, and so policy-wise, you know, for the last 50 years, theoretically anyone can live anywhere if they can afford it. I mean, we've, we've banned formal racial discrimination. Um, and, but, but when that happened in, I think, 1968, 
maybe not coincidentally, the same year riots broke out in, in, in many major uh, American cities, including our, our native Washington. And, um, you know, the, the set of federal policies that existed uh, since the end of World War II encouraged, um, you know, suburbanization and sprawl. So those cities were cleared out, in fact, of a significant part of their black middle class as well as most of the white middle class. Uh, then, of course, in our lifetime, you know, starting in the mid 90s, uh, because of cultural shifts and a precipitous drop in crime, um, there's been, you know, cities have become cool again and, and, and young people want to live in them. Uh, and, and job centers. And, and they've become job centers. Uh, that's also worth acknowledging. All these things are related. Um, and so banks that previously maybe wouldn't have wanted to invest in small businesses in a neighborhood like Bed-Stuy. Now they do, but they want to invest in small businesses with the specific purpose of attracting young people to those particular neighborhoods where, you know, they, they have the opportunity to create new market-friendly housing also targeted at those young people and thus fundamentally change the, the demographics of those neighborhoods, uh, not just racially, but in terms of class and economics. It's not just about uh, the neighborhood losing its character. Uh, and for the record, I mean, I, I believe in respecting the character and history of neighborhoods, but I also understand that neighborhoods naturally do change over time, and they always have. Um, this is about a specific targeted effort by banks and policymakers to steer the demand that exists towards certain particular neighborhoods. And the impact that it can have, the market incentives that it can create are, uh, you know, let's say you're a, a, a landlord and you uh, have a rent-stabilized building and your tenants are low-income Black families and they've lived there for a while, uh, but now your neighborhood is hip and in demand. Well, you know, because of rent stabilization, you can't just jack up the rent and kick them out, which is a good thing. I hope we agree. Yeah, definitely. Um, yep. But, but, but there are loopholes. And the way they would do that was tenant turnover. And the way they would do that was to, not to put too fine a point on it, torturing tenants out of their homes, right? Yeah, and that happens in San Francisco too. But yeah. I, I do want to stop you there, David, because yeah. it's important to make a distinction between uh, the, the type of investments where you're building new housing without displacing anybody versus speculation in existing housing. And to me, those are, those are different issues. I'm totally against uh, you know, speculation on existing housing where landlords will buy a building with the intent of kicking out their uncontrolled tenants. And they even pretty much say that on their, their like selling materials for buildings. It's like, oh, look at the upside that you could get and I'll show you a pro forma of after like you raise the rents to market rent. Like that's terrible. But some of them didn't buy them that way. They've just had them for years and those are the incentives now, right? For sure. for yeah, sure. I mean, that rehabs is a thing. And And so like, I actually see building new housing as, as being the substitute for that. Because there is money to be made for, you know, whatever the reasons may be, there's people with money that want to move into uh, the, the urban cores of our metropolitan areas. And you can make money off of that by building new housing for them, or you can make money off of that by kicking people out of existing housing who are lower income. And so to me, obviously, one of those options is less harmful. 
Well, yeah, uh, to the extent that, I mean, I will say it does sound a little bit like trickle down. Uh, in, in the This is what I'm worried about. Like, are progressives ever going to be able to support a thing that is called market? Like, right. It is I a mean, branding problem. It's a, it's major a real problem. branding problem. Like, we think that we need market rate housing and we especially need it in the most expensive exclusionary communities. Because like this whole thing that you're talking about is like what happens in a shortage when all of the demand is forced into the low-income gentrifying communities. And fundamentally what, what Yimby is talking about is saying like the place where you have a $2 million house, that is where the market is saying allow apartments. Yeah, well, so the other thing is, and this may be specific to New York and London and a few other cities, but um, but it's it's certainly a, a perceived issue in in New York and one I perceive myself. Um, what is demand exactly? Because I think when people hear demand, not only do they hear you're, that you're talking in market terms, uh, but they also, you know, assume that what you're saying is okay. This city has uh, X housing units, and then it has you know, X plus whatever people who want to live in it. And that number is just naturally growing. And, um, you know, we, we need to increase the number of housing units so that we can accommodate all those people. And that's how it's usually talked about. And it's a, it's a sort of a logical inference. Uh, and it's true to an extent. I mean, New York's population is growing. San Francisco's population is growing. But it doesn't... Well, and our jobs are growing. I mean, we've had 10 jobs for every one unit of... Sorry, eight jobs for every one unit of housing over the past 10 years. Right, which actually speaks to another um, structural problem we should get to in a sec. But first, I want to say that demand also means concentrated wealth and the speculation you were talking about. Uh, and in New York, which, you know, is a global market for uh, money laundering and... Uh, you know, or that maybe that puts too sinister a, a connotation on it for, for investment and speculation. Um, you know, we have enormous number of vacant units, um, especially in, in the, the core of the city. I mean, the demand is, is driven by people who want to stash their money in a profitable investment. Now, I, I just don't think that's, I mean, A, I think that we can pass a vacancy tax and YIMBYs have and will continue to help with that. Good. But like, it's that's, also that's, that's an important ask. I, I'm like I've I've been saying vacancy tax, vacancy tax, vacancy tax. The Vancouver did a vacancy tax. It's great. It also, yeah. for, I mean, selfishly, it means for me, I get to stop talking about these phantom vacant units. I mean, I totally understand why you would want to take that issue. Off the table. <laughs> I think it's um, but it's it's not a small thing in a city like New York. It's fine. I don't. You know what? I will. I will yeah. pretend that I believe that there are tons of vacant units in order for us to hold hands and work on a vacancy tax and then not talk about it anymore. Well, I'll say they're not, it's not all international either, right? And, and, and foreign money, frankly, shouldn't be totally stigmatized in this. I mean, a lot of it is, is just people with pied de and who live in the United States. Yeah, and, there's, and the pied de And the Airbnb, uh, you know, my building, I'm pretty sure, which is, uh, for the record, a a six-story pre-war, unrenovated, rent-stabilized apartment building in Prospect Leopards Gardens, of which there are a bunch, uh, is um, I'm pretty sure that there is at least one unit in this building that is being illegally used as an Airbnb, right? And that's that's one. And and like someone doesn't actually live there; they they rent the unit. And then, that too, though, I thought New York also cracked down on Airbnb. I know San Francisco did. 
they have cracked down, but uh, I guess not sufficiently. <laughs> People get away with things. Yeah, the rules um, in Airbnb are pretty strict here now. Yeah. I mean, and Yimby's took no position on this, right? So it's sort of, to me, it's like, okay, I, I, I mean, we can get, I, I, I would like for, this is the like, I don't necessarily, as a progressive, as somebody who wants to tax wealth, I think that it's actually good that money wants to park itself in cities where we can see it and tax it. And like the nice thing about- It's a, it's a, a slightly galaxy brain take, but I like it. <laughs> but like the thing about like parking your money in real estate is that it physically exists and we can find it and then right. we can tax it. As opposed to like the Panama shit where you're like, I don't really know where that is and how we tax it. Like the galaxy brain take of like why we should have cities be these like thriving economic centers is because then you can have progressive governments that tax and then spend that money to uplift people at the lowest income levels. Right. So I uh, agree to an extent now. The flip side, of course, is that to the extent that Yimbyism is aligned with the interests of developers, developers, uh, and, and, and directly allied with developers, I think, in many cases, developers are going to fight every one of these uh, progressive regulations that we're saying we agree on, right? I mean, they're, they're going to fight uh, for, uh, against this, uh, this vacancy decontrol uh, we'll fight them on that. Yeah, I mean, I just don't, I, these are the other, the other thing you mentioned of like, oh, well, previously wealthy people have won the ability to like maintain exclusionary zoning. And so like, it's not going to work. I don't know. This is like this like weird pessimism that I don't see progressives applying to any other issue. Like why can't well, we, how, how does the MB do unit, these things? how does the MB movement get along generally with uh, like, tenants' rights advocates in, in low-income neighborhoods? Like, are those alliances being Better built? Outside of San Francisco. Yeah, it totally varies. I think, like, in places where, I mean, this is what I have seen, is that in places where the tenants' rights movement uh, is, like, smaller and the opponents of single-family homeowners who speak poorly about renters, right? So if you go down to the South Bay, the anti-poor people, it's, it's, everything's very explicit, right? They'll like say like, we don't want more renters in our community. And so the YIMBY uh, Tenants' Rights Alliance is like much stronger and much easier because it's, it's just clear to see like YIMBYs want to support, you know, tenants' rights and ensure we do development without displacement and we want more apartments and like that's good for renters. It's just all very like clean. Um, in places like San Francisco and sort of some parts of LA and places where there's like, I just think there's the battle lines are really intense and the kind of like who is associated with big money and like the kind of like existing intra blue, right? Like progs versus mods thing. A lot of the tenants rights people have aligned with people who think markets are bad generally and therefore market rate housing is bad generally. And they've also had to fight for things like demolition controls to ensure that we are not doing development with displacement. And they've really fought to get more policies. And, and so they just like see the developers as the enemy in a way that I think is kind of like not movable. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can see how those battle lines would confound I mean, it seems like Yimbyism at its best is proposing a pretty comprehensive strategy for addressing these problems. 
And the, the trouble with comprehensive strategies, as we see, is that, uh, is, is that you know, you'll, you'll meet more opposition for some of your proposals than others, but then you're associated with uh, the stuff that worked and the stuff that didn't. And my suspicion on, on virtually any comprehensive strategy on any policy front is that the stuff that threatens the interests of wealthy and powerful people most directly is the least likely to go through. Uh, maybe action item consensus on is that, uh, is that, is that Yimbyism has an image problem it needs to solve with um, the left and with a lot of probably low-income urban residents. I mean, uh, the way I see solving, to some degree, I am not sure that it's solvable. Well, to some is. degree, I think that it's that by showing up for subsidized, the, the times when I have known that we have made an impact on it is, you know, things that we've done from the beginning, but like, you know, got a little more press was like the recent um, Embarcadero Homeless Navigation Center, where we mobilized a bunch of people to speak in favor of a homeless shelter. Um, it took off in the press and people, you know, really noticed that we were showing up for that. And they, they were like, oh, Yimby is showing up for a homeless shelter. It was kind of undeniable that we were agreeing. Um, when we were yes on, you know, a homeless funding measure, Proposition C, that I think helped. I think like the only way you really change the perception is through action and through undeniable action where you just show up over and over again. But I also like, I, I sometimes sort of wonder like, we're, we're always going to also say that market rate housing will help, and especially market rate housing in wealthy communities. Um, but I, 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 I wonder how much that is like a hill that many people in the progressive world like cannot get over. Well, there are other, I think, obstacles that sometimes come up in practice. Like, so a lot of uh, what is done in New York, and I'm guessing in San Francisco too, when you do get new market rate is... Um, you know, there'll, there'll be a minority of it that's, that's uh, affordable and, uh, or is, is, is marked as affordable. And I think what, what happens in practice is first, just the image of, you know, 25% of a, of a new building being affordable, 75% being market with market understood to be for, for rich people uh, is, is not great imaging to begin with. But even if you allow for it and say, well, at least we got a bunch of new affordable units, uh, in practice, those units often it's like, who are they affordable for? It seems like they're, it's like, it ends up being like a lottery for like uh, middle-class professionals, right? Which don't get me wrong, that describes a lot of people I know and, 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 and we could all use better housing, but like, um, you this know. This is it, the death spiral. This, I, we should talk about inclusionary for a while because like I, inclusionary is where the housing discourse goes to die. Like this is, you have touched upon like the issue that I feel like, will keep us all from getting along. And it acts like market rate housing is the bad thing. I mean, you just set yourself up for this really toxic discourse that like, I think there are a lot of like very smart planners who were like, oh, we'll make everybody appreciate the market rate housing more because it'll come with some affordable. And so they'll like want the affordable so they'll start liking the market rate. And I just think that's like a deep misunderstanding of human psychology. Because it ends up being these like battles over, oh, well, I think they can do a higher, like you're saying 25% is like, that seems like not enough. Well, I mean, but, it's, in a way, it's like you're literally telling the neighborhood, like, uh, if you let um, 
you know, you should let in a large number of new people and three quarters of them should be rich and one quarter of them should be in practice, probably middle class. And that's the ratio at which you should let new people into your neighborhood. It just all sounds bad, even though Soda's saying no new people should come to our neighborhood. Yeah, and this is why, I mean, in San Francisco, we, for this inclusionary thing, and, and in many places, you can either fee out so that the money goes into nonprofit, 100% affordable, subsidized affordable projects, right? So that it gets put together with other federal funding and, and builds nonprofit subsidized affordable, which everyone sort of to some degree says they want. Or you can build on site. And there has been this like push to like build it on site. I, I just find this like the inclusionary debate makes everyone unable to sort of say, okay, what do we all want as a community? It just ends up being very divisive. Yeah, I see that. Well, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to go a little bit galaxy brain for a second and and go um, even, even bigger than the scale at which we've been discussing this because everything we've been talking about is um, on the scale of, of basically an individual city, uh, you know, or, or localities uh, zoning and planning, right? I mean, those are those are the levers that you have at your disposal. Are are uh, you know how how San Francisco or any other particular city, uh, you know, allows its built environment to be. But underlying all of these problems, I think, is an enormous amount of inequality. First of all, and 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 you know the growth of the. 0.1% and, and the global 0.1%. And also uh, the, the closely related to that, the hyper-concentration of certain elite industries in a handful of cities and the relative stagnation of the rest of the country, which I think something very closely paralleling that has happened in the UK and, and, and other countries as well, maybe Canada. Um, well, can I pause you there? Because I see housing, like cause and effect, right? Like housing is driving people, the cost of housing is driving people out of the middle class and pushing them further and further from jobs. One of the core issues why the middle class is shrinking is our housing shortage. Well, so I see that, uh, but although I think think the, the real problems that the left usually places at the core of that predate these housing crises by several decades and, and go to the sort of neoliberal turn in the 70s and the, the collapse of heavy industry and so on. But, um, but, but regardless, I mean, of, of how that all played out, I think what I'm saying is today, the tech industry itself is a problem and the finance industry itself and, you know, a handful of other uh, industries are a problem. The fact that you have these, you know, monopolies basically sucking up society's resources and distributing them to a a small class of people uh, who also want to geographically concentrate in in just a few cities uh, is is a problem. And it's always going to be a problem. And, you know, quadrupling the amount of of physical housing in San Francisco to accommodate all those extra people who, who need jobs there, even if it were possible, which Practically speaking, I, I doubt it is. It's totally uh, would, possible, but where else would they live? I mean, I, this is the part that I don't get well, about this thing. Well, this is, this is where it's a little galaxy brain, but like ideally, you know, more of them would live in places like St. Louis, which are, 
you know, struggling to retain residents or, or Detroit or Kansas City or wherever. Why well, is that better than densifying San Francisco, which is a liberal city and has better transit infrastructure? Well, to the point liberal city, I mean, I, I have several answers to that. One is, you know, ideally the, the influx of people into any of these cities would bring about a demand for density and greater infrastructure, which I realize is an uphill battle, although to some extent it's happening in, in a lot of the places we're talking about. Um, but also, uh, you know, I mean, if we were gaming out the interests of what's best for liberalism nationwide, you know, I'm a little skeptical. This is like why Trump won. But, you know, there's an argument to be made that concentrating that, that the brain drain of, of like young people away from the middle of the country to the Bay Area is is a long term political problem for the Democrats Ooh. and progressivism. I think uh, the opposite. OK, this is well, fun. Well, it, it's certainly yeah. as long as we have an electoral college and a Senate, it's a problem. No, I think that people are more bitter in our rural places because we have barred them from being able to migrate to places where there are jobs and opportunity. Okay, here, here I think I strongly disagree. I, I, yes, I, I, I suspect more than zero people who feel that way exist, and I'm sure anecdotally they can be found. Someone who, you know, came from Iowa. Well, but they wouldn't tell you this story, right? Well, like, no, but I mean, I, I, there are people who like try to live in a coastal city for a few years, find that it's impossible for them to settle down and raise a family there, move back to their hometown, but are, are you know, have complicated feelings. Like that is a thing that happens. But honestly, I think most people, uh, you know, all things, most people anywhere, all things considered would like to stay around uh, their communities and the people they grew up with. They just often don't see much opportunity to do so. And, uh, you know, if all, if all your friends are leaving uh, because there's nothing for you in Iowa and you're all moving to the Bay Area, then of course, you know, that's what you want too. But I don't, I don't think Yimbyism wants to associate itself with the hollowing out of, of, of much of the middle of the country. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the environmental thing is to densify both Iowa and here to have walkable, vibrant communities that are not sprawl-based. Well, I, yes. Uh, and, like, and Strong and, towns is in our kind of orbit, right? Yeah, Let, no, and, what we're talking about is ending suburbia. Yeah, no, and I think we agree on all of that. We want, you know, we want sidewalks everywhere. We want, you know, denser, normally suburban neighborhoods. We want uh, you know, bus rapid transit and, and, and trains and all of that um, in Iowa as much as in uh, the Bay Area. But, um, but I'm just saying I think it's worth grappling with this underlying context that, that too much of our economy is in too few cities right now. And I don't like that. What, like, this is like too much of our economy in too few hands corporately, sure. But like, Urbanization is the dominant trend of the entirety of human civilization. And like, why can't, what, like, why would we, we can say that we want to like break up big banks and break up big tech. And I'm all for all of those things. I still think that even if you had a bunch of smaller corporations and more well-regulated corporations, you would probably even more see people wanting to cluster in a few cities because 
you would need like the talent pool, like all of these network effects means that people would want to live there more than ever. And like people want to live in cities. Well, I, I get that and I see how that works. But at the same time, uh, you know, historically the pattern was different. And, and to, of course, you know, government policy levers uh, encourage this in the first place. Um, but uh, urbanization was a was a government policy. I, I think you're right, David. I think that if we if we didn't have so much corporate consolidation, that we probably would have more jobs in uh, the, the middle of the country and other cities. Yeah, I mean, I come at this. I also don't think that's a reason not to build in the Bay Area. It's not, but it's just a thing to to you know keep in mind, like. Uh, I also, I come at this from, you know, a media industry perspective where what, you know, the media industry is in a horrific state right now, as I'm sure you've heard, but, um, but you know, the, the particular problem has been in cities that are not New York or San Francisco or LA or DC, which, you know, do have enough wealthy and, and upper middle class professionals who, and, and, and the industries that need to be covered, concentrated in them that, they will support, you know, functioning media communities. But if you want to cover what's going on in uh, any number of, of other cities in the middle of the country, uh, or not even in the middle, um, you know, that the, the consolidation of the news industry under, under a few corporate giants uh, is sort of reflective of, of this larger problem I'm talking about. It's hard to picture what it would look like if, like, you broke up Facebook and, and Google and all these things, and, you know, w would they all still just be smaller firms competing in the Bay Area? Maybe. But, uh... I'm interesting way to answer that question, is, which would be to look at all of the companies that Facebook and Google have acquired, and where were they based? Well, they started in the Bay Area. I understand that. Um, I mean, the other lever, though, and that would you know, prevent some of the negative externalities of all this concentration would be uh, just taxing the hell out of the 1%. Which uh, you can do easier if they are in your city or in a blue state. Yes, although ultimately I think without effective um, federal policies in this direction, it, it, will, it will never get too far. But. Sure, but no YIMBY is going to fight you on that. Or, I mean, like, there might be one or two, but they're not going to do it under the banner of Yimbyism, right? Like, we as a Yimby, like, like, this is the kind of thing where I'm like, when someone's like, oh, well, we shouldn't build housing because actually we should tax the wealthy. I'm like, it's like I, it just seems so random to me. I'm it's just like, like, yeah. No, to be clear, I'm not, not saying we shouldn't build housing. We should build housing. Um, Say the word market. Uh, that's. You know, I, I'm not going to commit to that on on this recording, uh, but but I'm not I'm not going to you know categorically swear it off either. I mean, uh, market rate housing, David. Say it, market. I, I, I hear what you're saying, but um, but I am I am not against building more housing. I, at no point, by the way, in this conversation have we dropped the term I don't see often enough, BIMBY with a with a PH, which is public housing in my backyard. But uh, I know some people on the left have embraced that. Um, how much that's just to, to be contrarian to YIMBYs, I, I couldn't say. But I know. I mean, every time we say, yes, let's do public housing, they tell me to fuck off again. So, I, you know. I think it's worth noting that the YIMBY policies that we've advanced this year would be great for public housing. Like, uh, with, um, was it, like we're trying to get uh, an upzoning in San Francisco that would be for affordable projects only. 
we're trying to get a streamlining here in San Francisco that would be for affordable projects only. And the $600 million bond. Um, and the other one I was going to say is that there's an effort to repeal California's Article 34, which is something in the California Constitution that uh, requires voter approval before building a low-income housing project and has a horrible racist history, so huge barrier to public housing. So that's all stuff that, that we're working on. So public housing in our backyards, let's do it. All right, sounds good. Um, was there anything else we wanted to cover? I, I feel... Um... I feel like this has been pretty expansive, but. So I want to have one thing, which is like, I've been biting my tongue. Um, but now it's like, okay, we went to high school together, so I can just say it. Um, I think that there is a certain kind of arrogance about college educated white guy living in Brooklyn. Uh-huh saying that we should make people live in other cities rather than densify their city. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say first of all that although it is true I grew up in the DC area, um, I, which, it's, which by the way is going through exactly the same problem, so it's not like I would be exempt if I lived there. Uh, my whole family going back a century is from New York. My dad was born and raised less than a mile from where I live now. So, you know, these, these two cities that are both going through all this, that is home to me. And if I were to move to Iowa, I, I would not know many people um, or wherever, but, um, okay, so but that's, cities have been the adopted homes of every misfit for generations. Are you, are you calling me a misfit, Laura? Yes. I, <laughs> damn. Um, all right. Well, I, I, I suppose I could own that, but um, uh, yeah, no, you're you're not wrong. Of course, in the you know fabled 1970s of of New York City, the you know Patti Smith et cetera era, um, the the city was actually quite cheap to live in, and the reason it was cheap to live in was that its economy was flailing and the middle class was leaving it. Um, White and, flight, basically. What? White flight, basically. White flight and. Um, Okay, you know. but 50 years before that, they were building housing, right? Like, it's not like, like, yes, that, I feel like we have this, like, a hundred year long is, like, the longest our memories can contain. But, like, no, never before have we seen economic growth and a lack of housing growth to compensate for that, except in this past 50-year span where we invented regressive zoning policies. Yeah, I don't, I don't really disagree with you, and I see what you're saying, and you know, as long as we're talking about our high school, I mean, it, uh, it's in Northwest Washington, DC, uh, in a, in a part of the city, which as you can see on those New York times maps, uh, is mostly zoned single family. Um, my family actually lived just over the line in Maryland, but in a similar environment. Uh, and, um, the, uh, the, I think uh, probably most of our classmates grew up in, in single-family housing, uh, even if they were in the city proper, uh, which a lot of them were. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm familiar. I mean, if you're calling me privileged, I will fully own up to that. That's something I never try to disguise. Um, but uh, so actually, I want to ask this in, in full devil's advocate mode, because this is not where my own sympathies are, but um, 
for all of this to work as we're ideally describing that it should, um, a lot of relatively regular people are going to get hurt, right? I mean, and I don't mean the poorest people. Here I'm talking about, let's imagine um, a family that, um, you know, of, of uh, genuinely middle class, you know, uh, a teacher and a, and a janitor or something bought, bought a house in Washington, D.C., in, in Northeast D.C. in, uh, you know, 1970. And now that house is worth many times what they paid for it. And, you know, in case it wasn't obvious, I'm imagining a black family in this case. Um, and like, and, and maybe they're voting for, for NIMBY policies to protect their investment that they've made, right? They, they bought when these were cheap neighborhoods. They lived through some tough times. Uh, you know, now their home is, is maybe worth $2 million and something to retire on. Like, isn't yimbyism basically a threat to their their savings and 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 uh you know i understand that that not everyone is in that situation uh that a lot of the people in that situation are astonishingly privileged by any measure um and that you know trade-offs have to be made but i just wonder yeah, like the galaxy brain stuff i'm gonna go galaxy brain because i think that this yeah. is like this is where you get to which is at the end of this sort of like train of thought of yimbyism, you eventually get to the belief that we cannot continue to treat housing as an investment, which yes. like progressives say a lot, but like, what does that then really at its heart mean? It means we're going to have to get a, like eventually scale back things like the mortgage interest tax deduction. I mean, and I, I, I am totally on board with this galaxy brain scheme of yours. Um, I have no idea how we get there, given that in our own lifetimes, the US economy very nearly, and the global economy very nearly collapsed over a threat to um, middle-class homeownership, uh, and that it is essentially what it means to be middle-class in this country. This is like the next step for kind of like if we get to like what is the full final, right? Which like Yimbys often are much more short-termists. Like we don't often go all the way to what the final form version of society is because like we're all pragmatists kind of is kind of the core value. Um, but I do think that like if you push it far enough, you're gonna say that like our society has structured the way that middle-class people save and invest is by investing in a single family home and then by investing in housing. And that's how people pull themselves out of poverty in general. That's like the traditional American thing. And then on top of that, you layered all this like complicated banking shit that took advantage of people. And you've seen all of their crises based on this like fundamental problem, which is that treating housing as an investment is like problematic at best. Um, yeah. I 100% agree. Yeah. I think we all have to acknowledge, uh, and this can go back to the issue of YIMBY messaging, that there are people who I think are middle class homeowners uh, who will suffer uh, from this. I know this who, is who the. Suffer, and, who, and whose scan is sympathetic to, I think, the average progressive minded person. Yeah. So this is Jennifer Hernandez. directly to this, though, because I don't think that that's, that, that uh, the hypothetical that you gave is, is I haven't seen that. 
like the hypothetical of the, the the black homeowner who wants to oppose development because it'll protect their property value. I don't think that's how it works. Oh, oh no. I see that. I mean, I especially I see it a lot at Balboa. I mean, there was a a black homeowner who's a owner in Westwood Park who is one of the most anti. Uh, a 50% affordable project in uh, Balboa. Because it, it, she thinks it's going to lower her. Uh, he, value. yep, he thinks it's going to value their property values. And they think it's going to increase traffic and all these other negative things for well, them. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't want to overly generalize. There are exceptions all around. But in the context of Washington, and I, I suspect that there are parallels to this in many other cities, um, in the context of Washington, I would say. <laughs> The most YIMBY-driven development policies tend to be supported by, you know, uh, younger and disproportionately white college-educated people moving in who want new housing built for them. Uh, and the, the, I would say the political forces that want to preserve the status quo, in, in many cases, I mean, this was, when we were born, this was a two-thirds black city. It's now under half black. Um, and the, the, political class that kind of decides things is the black middle class. Um, their power has been shrinking over the course of our lifetime. And there are vast tracts of the city that are zoned pretty suburban uh, and populated mainly by black middle class homeowners and population pressures on those neighborhoods. You know, I mean, all, all of these debates lead as very kind of race and also I would say generational. Yeah, uh, I mean, the big equivalent in the Bay Area is Chinese American, especially homeowners, especially throughout the South Bay, um, you have a lot of uh, immigrant, uh, especially Chinese, you know, other Asian, but bought homes as like their, you know, that's the American dream is that they bought a home and it's now worth, you know, four times what they bought for it. And they're very protective of that. And I, I completely. Who who among us would not be right? I mean, yeah. especially if they're not like coming from wealth. I mean, that that is their chance to retire in comfort is, is the house they've maintained all the yeah. I think when NIMBYs are cast entirely as like wealthy white, you know, old money homeowners in, in the most elite neighborhoods, that that is also a dangerous simplification, especially when you're trying to build real political power. Um, my last thought will be that I think that the heroes and villains is always a kind of like dangerous simplification in politics Mm -hmm. and yet is something we all do on every issue. Um, I have come to really see nimbyism not as like a person is not a nimby. Nimbyism is something that is triggered by a structure of decision making that you can get the same individual to make very pro-housing decisions when they're asked, should the city writ large build a lot of housing so that your kids can have teachers and your kids will be able to live here? The same person will say yes to that and asked, do you want a big honkin' apartment building next to you? We'll say no. And and so how do we make more decisions in a way that we have more pro-social outcomes is kind of the next step. Uh, well, that I, I agree with that framing. So that's a good place to end it. And my, well, I was going to make my final thought. Sorry, did I do that? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> so my final thought um, 
a lot of this felt a little bit like a debate, like a point counterpoint. So I hope that we're still friends. Um, <laughs> and because I, I think that uh, what I always have been saying recently, well, I guess I haven't always been saying it, but what I've been saying a lot recently is that we really need to build more housing and have tenant protections. These are not, these are often presented as things that like we've got to do one or the other. And I just don't believe that. I think anybody who's saying to do one but not the other is wrong. We got to do both. And so I, I think we identified today a lot of things uh, that we agree on. So let's keep going. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. This was fascinating. What were you going to, where, how were you going to pull this back? Well, I was just saying that, that that's a huge deal here and it was pushed by, I mean, I would give a lot of credit to the fact that that's happening to frankly DSA and similar or similarly aligned uh, groups that, um, you know, and, 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 you know, we, we um, got called out a lot in various forums because if you looked at how the vote actually broke down in these primaries in, in state Senate districts that flipped, you know, it was often, for lack of a better term, gentrifiers who were, uh, I, I would say, you know, renters in, in roughly my demographic uh, who were voting for the new candidates um, who, who made this possible. Um, now, why would they do that? And why should we, we trust the motives of people like that? Well, I think, you know, if you're a renter, like you're, even, even if you're a relatively high income renter next to people who've been in these neighborhoods for a long time, you're actually quite vulnerable to, uh, to, to this set of problems. And, um, you know, it, it, it does affect you too. And, uh, and also you're just, you know, it, you, you're coming in with maybe a different set of assumptions and expectations than have prevailed for a long time. I guess I'm not, I mean, I, I'm for all of that stuff. I, I, all of the tenants protections in the world, which are really important, like help slow these kinds of like underlying fundamental shortage problems. But there is like this underlying fundamental shortage problem that there just aren't enough seats at the table. And so you're talking about that like the new people are who sit at those table are like not that big an asshole and are somewhat self-interested that they're voting for tenants protections. And that's like to some degree good we have to, on top of that, make more seats at the table. And like, well, I, I mean, and like, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't allow, I, I should say it's not just self-interest. I mean, I don't, I don't want to completely dismiss the idea that, you know, people earnestly care about their neighbors and, and, and their well-being, but, um, uh, you know, that we should take them at their word that they do. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying about more seats at the table. Um, do you see when you pass um laws and regulations like this that that make uh maybe make the lives of of uh developers in these gentrifying neighborhoods a bit harder and make landlords lives harder and screw with their investments um do you see that then so so you say it slows the process of of gentrification does that create displacement i would say and displacement well does that create negative externalities for regular people that that spill out into other parts of the city and like how how does that work in your view i don't think that the the negative externalities that may or may not be there are such a molehill 
next to the mountain that is exclusionary single family home only zoning in places like the west side of San Francisco and Cupertino that like I think that the benefits of those kinds of policies outweigh any maybe measurable negative externalities. And so I'm totally willing to either pay that price or maybe there is no price and focus our energy on the mountain, not the molehill. And developers and landlords are different interests. Yeah. Like developers are trying to at least in, in some capacity do productive work by like turning vacant land into housing or turning like a single family home into apartments. And that's actually productive work. A landlord is, is there to collect rent. You know, like that's, I mean, it's, oh, it's a different interest. And so like a well, a well crafted rent control law, and I have no reason to believe that what passed in New York is not that, isn't really going to hurt developers. And this is also like Yimbies believe if you have a well functioning housing market, housing depreciates over time. And so a rent control policy is not incompatible with depreciating housing over time. Okay, it's back on. Okay. So I was saying, you know, since since I think we probably agree on more than we disagree and in a sense that means I'm, I'm rooting for your movement to succeed. I think that it's very important to keep in mind um, optics, but really like what, what these problems actually look like to people on the ground, right? And, and what they look like is, uh, you know, is, is these condos that open in their neighborhoods are the, 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 the rich kids moving into the neighborhoods, um, the development companies, the politicians enthralled to developers, like the, that that is and 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 not to put too fine a point on it but the the yimbies getting in my mentions when i'm a jerk on twitter uh all, all <laughs> i don't of, know if you can complain about that that might be the least of it but like um <laughs> maybe but uh but i'm just saying like uh and the fact is we mentioned earlier that you know it, it is a movement that often kind of scams as as white and highly educated um like you you know when you're talking about policies that you don't think are that central like um vacancy taxes or whatever like i think part of the the value of them is uh that you're showing regular people who you know are bearing the brunt of all these problems uh that you are on their side and that you see the same problems as they do this is what i think is going to be the hardest thing for the yimby movement is the fact that so much of the like, like where is the most intense of the like crabs in a bucket happening, right? Is in these like gentrifying communities where you have like people in a shortage seeing each other as enemies is like the thing. And how do we pivot the eye so that we can see that like the main force that's putting us all crabs in a bucket is the single family homeowners who are at different hearings, right? They're sometimes they're even literally different city councils, right? They're different governments and we don't necessarily yeah. have control or we, it's hard to like pull people to go look at those high income communities where the battle should be and hasn't been. And how do we like, I think that like the social media exposing 
what happens at like a Cupertino city council is like fundamental to helping people identify more correctly who is forcing these kind of structural problems to be the way that they are for regular people. I also think that like the thing that you're talking about of like showing up for vacancy tax and the thing that I think we do a lot of, which is like show up for affordable housing as much as possible is the other thing that helps with that. But it is really hard to not, you know, the, the place where people interact with like the developer who are like, you know, the regular people in low income gentrifying communities, you know, it's, it's not where we want to be having the battle and it's the battle that they know. And this is like the hardest thing I think in the sort of YIMBY discourses, especially because the first the first kind of things that we did was showing up for housing. And that inherently meant in low income communities of color that were expressing fears about displacement. And like, I think that like to the degree that that like permanently poisoned the well, I'm terrified of. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see why you would be. And, um, you know, I, I think also one thing you, you just kind of hit on there that is just a real logistical challenge, the way the country we live in is structured is, uh, that our our uh, major urban areas are are so broken up and in so many different ways, and uh, if you don't have a kind of metropolitan regional strategy for addressing density, and I'm, I, I know I'm not telling you anything new here, but yeah, if you if you can't explain to people in the mission why Cupertino is is relevant to them, or you know to think about it in terms of the area we grew up in, like. You know, if, if you could ask me right now, like, what is the single place in the Washington, D.C. area I would most like to just seize by eminent domain and turn into dense urban housing, like, right now, it's the, the country clubs in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which, <laughs> yes. which, which, you know, are environmental blights, they're socioeconomic blights, they're, to my mind, aesthetic blights, they're just bad in every way. Uh, screw the people who, you know, pay to be members of them. Uh, and if we could, in in this, you know, heavily white suburb that is literally just outside D.C. and uh, within the Beltway, uh, and, you know, if it's, it's surrounded not just by D.C., but by the built urban environments of downtown Bethesda and, and Silver Spring. And in the middle, you've got, you know, what are essentially lots that could be another Bethesda or another Silver Spring being given away to golf courses. And um, like, yeah, I mean, it, it seems a little messed up that the, the burden of new housing, like anyone who says they don't want something built in their neighborhood is a NIMBY, but if, if you're in Columbia Heights or, or somewhere like that and, uh, and new housing is going up in your neighborhood, uh, and meanwhile, you know, a few miles away, you've got these extremely low density suburbs full of rich white people with their golf courses, which and you have a world away. no jurisdiction over because they're in a different state. I mean, this is this, like, you know, what, why are you the one? And the answer is basically because you have fewer resources to stop it. And also because, you know, you, you live in the heart of, you, you live in what's already the densest part of the metro area. But why can't it be even denser, right? Well, and this is why Julian Castro's just announced yesterday federal standards for zoning is so intriguing. Cool. Yeah. Basically, it just says there should be federal standards for zoning. And like all of housing Twitter was like, oh, my God. 
<laughs> well, that, uh, that does sound good. And I, I'm glad his campaign is, uh, is doing something. <laughs> All right, I'm going to close it out there and I'll talk to you soon. Great. Uh, so, so good to talk to you. Um,